when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast is sponsored by Club W, the revolutionary new wine club that brings delicious bottles of wine right to your door. Join the club and take 50% off your first order by going to clubw.com slash happened today. So That Happened is also sponsored by MileIQ, the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Take MileIQ for a free 40-drive trial today by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, one of President Barack Obama's oldest campaign promises, his pledge to close the Guantanamo Bay detention facility, is back in the news after the Pentagon put forth the latest version of a plan to fulfill this commitment. We'll discover whether this final effort will finally do the trick. Meanwhile, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder is coming to Washington, D.C. to testify before the House Oversight Committee about the Flint water crisis. We'll talk to one member of that committee, Michigan Representative Brenda Lawrence, about the extent to which Snyder is himself culpable for the poisoning of Flint citizens. Finally, Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform joins us to talk about a great new plan from DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz that would gut a new rule from Elizabeth Warren's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that would regulate the predators in the payday loan business. And by great new plan, we're being sarcastic. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, Paige Lavender, and Jessica Schulberg. We will also get you up to speed on this week's GOP debate and the state of the Democratic nomination race. But here's what happened first. Hello, America, the world, all ships at sea. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your Huffington Post politics podcast broadcast about all the terrible and wonderful things happening in the world of politics. I'm Jason Lincolns, the editor of Eat the Press, and I'm here to talk with a, to introduce some people to talk about this week's GOP debate. Joining me is our good friend Arthur Delaney. Hi. And our extra special friend, Huffington Post editor, politics editor, Paige Lavender. Hello. Guys, tonight, well, let me, let me put it like this. After the Nevada caucus, it sure looked like this Republican nomination was really done and dusted, and that Donald Trump had the clear glide path and nomination, and everyone else had desperation written in their veins. But they scheduled a debate anyway. We had to have it. So tonight, what happened? We saw Marco Rubio, especially, and Ted Cruz, finally, after all this time, bring the guns of the Navarone on Donald Trump. Does this move the needle? It could. I don't think there's uh, any theory of politics has been too good at predicting what happens <laughs> with the needle 
as it relates to Donald Trump. What was amazing was that the establishment went into full freakout after Tuesday's Nevada caucus. Now it looks like he can run the table. And there seemed to be no strategy change, and Marco Rubio's campaign even said he would come out and, and not be too mean to the Donald on Thursday's debate. Head fake. Head fake. It was. He came out with all kinds of material, and he was very rude. And because I like conflict, I thought it was great. It was great. And uh, I would actually argue that I don't know. Like, everybody was freaking out of after Nevada. That's true. But Super Tuesday is is next week. It's coming up. And so I feel like this was sort of like Marco Rubio's last stand before that huge day of primaries and caucusing and whatever. And... You know, this was kind of like the last shot, I think, for Rubio and Cruz to sort of like make their mark on Trump in whatever way they could. And I think that they both did a pretty good job at at scarring him just a tad. You know, Sam Stein wrote an article this week talking about how weird it was that Republicans who have opposed Donald Trump at the beginning have nevertheless sat on their hands as far as dishing out the oppo research on Trump. Tonight, or this week, rather. Sorry, I keep blowing the whole time issue out of yeah, this. Yeah, we're not, we're not in a tonight right now. It's just whatever time it is right. for you, the listener. Sure. This week <laughs> at the debate, they brought the house, man. We heard Rubio and Cruz bring up Trump University, hiring undocumented immigrants. We heard him talk about uh, uh, giving money to all kinds of Democratic politicians. It was just about everything you can name. I think Ted Cruz made a pretty interesting point. I don't know who it's going to resonate with. I don't know if there are any unpersuadable voter, persuadable voters left. But he made an interesting point. Donald Trump is going to take the stand on a fraud case uh, regarding his scammy-ass Trump University real estate nonsense school. And he's going to take the stand in July. This is weeks before the Republican National Convention. Their nominee might be in court. That's crazy. Well, it's, it's a, a civil. Trump said it's a civil case, and I can make it go away th- with the settlement. He if could, he but he that. said he wouldn't out of principle. I bet he will now. Uh, and he was on his heels during these attacks. To people who've seen all the debates, he looked terrible mm-hmm. because he had to keep going back to things we've heard him say before about these other guys. He's a, he's a loser. He repeats mm-hmm. himself. Everyone hates him. Uh, and Marco and Ted had all this new material, but I don't know if, if uh, the casual viewer who hasn't seen all the other debates will realize how tired and recycled Trump's material was. I think, though, that I think the average viewer might, because even if you haven't seen the debates, you've seen Trump in campaign stops and in countless interviews, TV interviews and phone interviews, and he has this air of confidence everywhere he goes, like, his shit never stinks, and, like, you know, everything he says is correct, even if it's not correct at all, (laughs) and so tonight, he kind of seemed, you know, he had these very routine one-liners that he's been using, and then you're right that Cruz and Rubio would fire back with these new, you know, this new oppo research or whatever and then he just sort of trump just sort of would repeat himself and just say actually i think at one point he said i'm not repeating myself i'm not repeating myself which is like (laughs) kind of funny but um he just yeah he was just repetitive and he seemed flustered in in the way that trump can seem flustered which may not seem you know be that way for another person but he you know for what we've seen so far seemed like he was kind of struggling a bit to like with his retorts, I guess. And, and Marco Rubio was thinking on his feet. He mm-hmm. wasn't the robotic talking point Rubio. He was good tonight. Yeah. He in, had swag, In man. fact, when Donald Trump resorted to pointing out that Marco Rubio had repeated himself, Marco Rubio thoughtfully said, you just repeated yourself five <laughs> yeah, times. Yeah, took a little tip from Christie. And I have to say, when Rubio really started tonight, 
I like the fact that he began cool, calculated, calm, meticulous, didn't get sped up, mm-hmm. didn't get revved up. When he was talking about the immigration issue, he stayed chill mm-hmm. and very calculatedly and cruelly made his points. A really fun moment for me with Donald Trump tonight was, this is just like a sideline, was when Cruz took after him for remaining neutral in the Israel-Palestine conflict, Trump said literally in one breath, he said, uh, basically, it wouldn't be prudent for me to say I'm pro-Israel at this time if I want to make a deal. But that being said, I'm very pro-Israel. But that's how he says everything. Like, not to veer away from debate conversation or Israel or anything, but, like, even with his insults, that's how he frames them. Like, I would never call someone a pussy, but you know, this person said that the person's a pussy. And, like, talking about Megyn Kelly, like, saying, like, it would be wrong of me to call her horrible, but, like, whatever he said, you know, he he masked everything as if I would never say this when he's saying it. And so I think that's, it's crazy that he does that. Paige, was John Kasich there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Ben Carson, maybe, was also Ben Ben Carson managed to stand out with a fantastically strange comment about fruit salad. Standing out in a way that maybe he probably didn't want to, but <laughs> Can yeah. I just say well, that, like, they were the first two people to speak, Ben Carson and John Kasich, and Ben Carson's opening statement was like, I think that we all know America is sliding into the abyss of destruction. And then John Kasich came, came out and was like, guys, you can do anything you want in this country. <laughs> yeah. Reach for the stars. I was like, whoa, that is a real contrast. I don't know where we're going. America could be doomed or nah. Who knows? Ben Carson also continues to complain about not getting yeah. enough time. I find it very off-putting. Well, and it's funny, too, because um, after the, was it the South Carolina primary that was this this earlier this week, uh, he said, "It's I all think, blurring together." I know. Whatever the last one was, he no, it was Nevada. I'm sorry. He said, uh, "I think things are starting to happen here," and I'm like, "What things? <laughs> what things are happening? Like you're, the things that are happening are you're just like keep repeating that you're not getting called on in debates, and like you wish somebody." He said tonight, "I wish somebody would attack me." Like <laughs> that is just like I mean, you're literally asking for it, and when you have to do that in the middle of a debate. And nobody did. Nobody no, attacked yeah. him once all no. night. No, because he, he is a nice guy. Who, what do you have to attack him about? Yeah, leave the good doctor alone. He's and nice. They did. And he's unqualified. And he has no shot at being the president. So there's no need to attack him. It's like even Trump didn't want to kick that man while he was down, which is really saying something for the state of his I, campaign. I wondered what it does for the debate and the race to have Ben Carson and John Kasich on the stage when it was really a three-way battle. And they really they had to stop... Uh, Trump, Rubio, and Cruz from talking repeatedly to go off in, on some other topic altogether. I, I, uh, well, they I, had to give people bathroom breaks because they didn't really have a lot of commercials. Uh, they I went st- for longer than an hour at <laughs> one I point. I still say that every single time a debate really threatened to get going, fucking Wolf Blitzer stepped in and put a stop to it. I was just like, that's what I'm saying. Could someone give that dumbass the hook before well, we don't have a debate but Jason, tonight? What would have happened if he hadn't? I mean, would Donald Trump have marched off the stage? We would have had good television? Up- what, yeah. do you mean, what do you think would have happened? Honestly, I don't know. I physical mean, violence? I know that those other two guys are still in the race, but literally everything you read right now is it's a three-way race. It's a three-way right. race. I mean, they're just it's they're not in the race. They are technically in there, but it's a three-way race. Like <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're sleepy time and kid afterthought. Um <laughs> one big takeaway tonight, and this is a rich, creamy eclair of irony here, <laughs> is that I think that when Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney of all people, said 
you know, I think Donald Trump should really release his tax reforms. It seems like there's something in, in them that's fishy. Like, my big takeaway tonight was, like, it looks like Mitt Romney was right. No. Well, Mitt Romney is making this happen. Mm-hmm. No one was really talking about no. it. No. So Mitt, much the, the, irony there. And, and he said, and why did he say he couldn't do it? He's being audited is what Trump said. Right. This was extraordinary, an extraordinary answer. That's poppycock. You (laughs) can do whatever you want. No, but he said that he couldn't release his tax forms because he's been audited and has been audited for the last 14 years, which doesn't make sense. You could go ahead and release tax tax forms for... 13 years of those 14 years. Yeah, but Mitt, Mitt Romney actually made that point on Twitter in the middle of the debate. <sighs> it was a nice little zinger from okay. Mitt. If you're being audited, how is that supposed to reassure anyone that your taxes I, are good? I know. Could you imagine if Hillary Clinton said right now, I was like, guys, I'm, I'm being audited. This would be like the banner headline on The Federalist tomorrow. It's like completely insane that Donald Trump's excuse for not releasing his tax forms is like, well, I'm a widely suspected tax cheat, really classy <laughs> tax cheat. My cheating's so classy, I get audited. All the best auditors, the best, the best and classiest auditors are checking out my taxes. So I can't do anything. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> it's crazy. All right, final thoughts on this. It's going to come down to who wants it more. These three teams but just don't like can each I, other. Can I just review, okay? We came into the debate tonight with Ted Cruz looking forward to of Super Tuesday primary, where if he doesn't take a delegate lead for sure, he may never get one. And Tr- Rubio talking about how Florida might be his firewall. This is a this is a primary. It doesn't take place till March fifteenth. Do you think we, we 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 both we all I think agree they had great nights, Cruz and Rubio especially, and they took it to Trump and they fulfilled the fever dream of every Republican who's ever wanted to see Trump attacked on a debate stage. Why should I not think Trump's polls are going to go up as a result? Why his polls won't go up or down? Yeah, why do I think that this is these attacks are going to work? I mean, it was Oh, cool. I don't know. I don't know, man. It was cool. I would I would have thought they would work uh if Trump hadn't proved the opposite of the conventional wisdom for the past year. And so I think it's too hard to predict. But if anything can, this is at least different from what's been happening mm-hmm. for this whole time. So it will be worth checking. All right, well, if you're funding a Trump opposition research effort, <laughs> maybe look at his taxes. Other than that, I don't know. This is maybe too little too late. Paige and Arthur, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. We will be right back, and please stick around. We have a wonderful show for you today. Thanks. Hey, everybody. If you're anything like me, then you know exactly what you like and how you like it. It except when you're in the wine aisle. Tannins and terroirs mean nothing to most people unless you happen to be a fancy pants professional sommelier. I make a good effort wandering through the grocery aisle trying to pick something, but if I'm being honest, I'm more often drawn to a flashy label than I am drawing on real knowledge, which means most of the time I'm flying blind, hoping that my best guesses will result in a satisfying bottle to open and quaff. Well, with Club W, the guessing game is over. Club W is a revolutionary new wine club that sends you wine directly to your door. Not only does Club W send you wine, they send you wine that you'll love drinking. So if you've ever spent time wandering the wine aisle at the grocery store feeling lonely and afraid, Club W is here to help. 
Club W starts with a simple six-question quiz to help you define your palate so every bottle you receive is perfectly tailored to your tastes. Club W is leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. They work directly with vineyards to cut out the middlemen, and that saves you money. Club W even offers a no-risk guarantee that you'll love what they send you. If you aren't happy with a bottle, you get your money back. And now for the good part. Right now, Club W is offering our listeners... 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash happened. So don't ever come home to a wine-free house again. Just go to clubw.com slash happened to get 50% off your first order today. And we're back. Hey, it's Jason. I'm here with Zach Carter. Whew, getting out of my tent. Yep. <laughs> really feeling good. Gotta have the tent getting, joke. Getting back into the podcast this morning. Yeah. How, how are things today, everybody? Great, great. Very well, very well. And I'm also joined by Samantha Lockman. Hey, everyone. So it's been another eventful week in the in the in the campaign season. We have a debate, had a few primaries, a caucus. Obviously on the Republican side, it's now blood dim tide situation where Donald Trump is now basically swamping his way to the nomination. But we're gonna talk about the Democrats. Love the Democrats. Remember those guys? Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley was up in that thing <laughs> for a minute. It's kind of nice on the Democratic side you don't forget anyone. Right, yeah, yeah. And you don't uh, have you don't have anyone saying my third place finish is meaningful. Right. <laughs> Martin O'Malley's still cleaning up third right now for yeah, the Democrats. Yeah, definitely. Right. He's really he's really on it. So so we've had uh the Nevada caucus and after all the foofara over what was the profile of the state and what did the polls say and was this going to be another like break in Hillary's firewall she yeah. won she, she won, won relatively decisively yeah five points five yeah it was point pretty, good. pretty the, good the campaigns the interesting thing is the campaigns are fighting over who won Latino voters in Nevada and they've both rolled out different studies showing that they did so it's kind of confusing, and I honestly don't know who's right here. I think both can make a good claim to it. How is that possible? Uh, Sanders' campaign said, based on the entry or exit poll, whatever data, that they won Latinos. <laughs> but then the Clinton camp came, came, came back and said, well, yeah, but that's obviously un, just a slice of the Latino electorate. And also it's like probably unrepresentative because we won the largest county that has all these Latinos in here and yada, yada, yada. So they're fighting over that because it's all an optics thing. Sanders had to show that he could win among not just white people. Um, and so this this was huge for him to try to show that, and I'm not sure if, if he's made that case yet. Mm. I think it's yeah. I think he looks better coming out, at least on the, the identity politics side of things, yeah. than he looked going in. I think he needed to win that. Definitely. Um, I think it's the, the path ahead for him to win the nomination, I think, is that door is closing very quickly with that loss. Yeah. But, but I do think the, the one, like, scrap of good thing to me is that, that he... He, he did do not completely terribly in a state with a very high Latino population. Right, exactly. and, and even if he lost Latinos, he did well enough that there are entrance polls that say that he won. Yeah, he didn't do terribly. And now we have the South Carolina Democratic primary on Saturday. And what's really fascinating to me about that race is that Sanders hasn't been spending that much time in South Carolina this week. Like, if you look at his events, I've been, you know, you get all these emails. Like, he is spending time in a lot of other states that hold their primaries and caucuses on Super Tuesday, March 1st, instead. Whereas Clinton, every day, has, like, 
like five events in South Carolina. Her surrogates have events there. Her supporters, huge rallies, got to the boat events, you know, yeah. down halls. She all really that wants shit. to run up the score. In South yeah, Carolina. yeah, yeah. So he's not there. He's he's clearly realized that he has to do really well on Super Tuesday in a bunch of different states. It's always fascinating to me the whole electability gamesmanship because I've voted in a number of elections and I've never gone to the polls thinking, you know. I'm going to pull the trigger for someone who I think other people are going to vote for as opposed to like what I say. But Mm -hmm. apparently that's what a lot of people do. Yeah. I mean, for I think you see a lot of African-Americans who are quoted in stories about South Carolina and who who I've talked to who just say for them that a huge deal for them is that they're terrified of Republicans winning in the general election and they want Secretary Clinton because they think she has the best chance against Republicans. If we're talking about the uh, entrance polls and exit polls uh, as far as Latino vote go in Nevada, was there any um, was there any crosstab on that? Could we determine whether it was older Latinos that voted one way or younger Latinos that voted another way? I think there was. I would have to go and look at that more closely. Yeah, I haven't seen any hard numbers, but yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it would be consistent with the, the with every other crosstab that we've seen in the yeah. in the campaign. I mean, with with gender, for instance, I mean, Bernie Sanders has in, in New Hampshire, for instance, just totally way better with younger women. Yeah, actually beat beat Hillary Clinton among among younger women by a significant margin. Um, so, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a youth demographic to it. But, you know, the, the, a big thing for him in South Carolina is that he's invested a lot of money out there. Mm-hmm. And the black vote just has not come around. It just right. has not happened. And he's got... He's got Killer Mike out there for him. He's got he's got a lot of high profile black surrogates. He he has uh, a new endorsement from Spike Lee, and you just haven't seen a, a shift in the numbers in South Carolina with the black vote. Maybe maybe it'll happen nationwide at some point. Um, but it, it, to me, it looks like the way the demographics of, of this are going to break out is that Sanders is going to win white people, Clinton is going to win black people, and then Latinos are going to be a split. And so you you may end up with Latinos and Asian Americans being being sort of like the deciding factor in the Democratic primary, if, if if indeed Sanders can survive past Super Tuesday. Yeah. Which is anybody's guess at this point. One victory for the Democratic Party in this is that he did have to compete. There, there was a reason for him to compete in South Carolina. Because the, because the delegates are, it, because it's not a winner-take-all state, because they're, they're rewarded proportionally, if you lose by 10 points or if you lose by 20 points, there's a big difference in the number of delegates you take home. Yeah. So it did, it did force him to, to care. I don't know if 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 in retrospect that was uh, his campaign. People are going to think that was the best use of resources, though. I mean, he's got eleven states he's competing in on Super Tuesday, and he's got to take home some victories, or it's people are just going to start asking what what the purpose of his campaign is. Um, he's, one of those states is Vermont, so he's going to win Obviously. that one. Massachusetts is right next door. He's got to win that one. Minnesota is incredibly white. It's cold and it's northern. It's basically. It's basically Vermont with a city in it. <laughs> and it's, 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 perfect, that it's one. perfect for him because that's the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. You know, it's like super kind of socialist and, and labor oriented. And if he can if he can win those three, I think uh, Oklahoma is in play. If he can if he can get four or five states, I think he makes the case. Okay, well then now we we've earned the right to continue to the following week, where there are places like you know Nebraska and Kansas, where again you have these these sort of populist farmer socialist type. Uh, you, uh, pieces of the Democratic Party, yeah. they're totally powerless in a, in a general election, but in a, in a primary, they could actually have some effect. And then, then if he can stay there, if, you know, he can stay in the race. But he is definitely on the edge here. Uh, he's, got, he's got to do well on Super Tuesday. The other thing is he can stay in the race for as long as he wants because he just has so much money. Like, financially, there's not going to be the thing that happened to Jeb Bush of his donors revolting and saying, we're just not going to donate to you anymore. But there will be a public opinion backlash right. against him, I think. People will say, look, you're, divi- you're dividing the party yeah. needlessly. Just because you, just because all these people support you and gave you this money and right. want you to continue, yeah. you're dividing the party. Yeah. Um, 
it'll be funny if uh, Hillary Clinton ends up the beneficiary of that talk since in, in 2008 she was definitely not the beneficiary of that talk. She was seen as the person who was dividing the party uh, unnecessarily and prolonging the inevitable. Uh, so Super Tuesday probably does it loom? Do you think it looms larger in the Democratic race than it does in the Republican race? I think it absolutely does because I think I think Trump is just. I, I don't think the Republican race is interesting anymore. I, I think Trump's <laughs> just going to win. He's going to win by a very large margin, and everybody's got to get used to that. All right. Well, Samantha, thank you for being part of this. Uh, we will be right back. Hey, guys, we know that many of you who listen to this podcast do so while you're in the car driving to and from work, hoping to pass the time as you commute to your job. But we also know that many of you share something in common with millions of Americans. When you get in your vehicle, you're at your job. Thanks for listening. Here's something that we can do for you. When your livelihood depends on all the time you spend behind your wheel, tracking the mileage you travel is often a big part of your income. And getting your mileage right is often critical to keeping profits up and expenses down. You've got to do it. Guesstimating could mean losing money, but logging that mileage can be a painstaking chore. So let's help relieve that burden by getting you onto MileIQ. MileIQ is the solution you've been looking for. MileIQ is the number one mileage tracker app and it's trusted by millions of Americans. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker that detects, logs, and calculates your drive for you automatically. No more scribbles on post-it notes. No more guesswork at the end of a long day. MileIQ is easy to use and it keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. If you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. In fact, the average MileIQ user logs $547 a month in drives. MileIQ does all the work for you. You just install it, and it runs in the background of your phone, recording your trips. It's your calculator and your memory, and its easy interface is a breeze to use, letting you focus on what's important. MileIQ is one of the few apps in the App Store that actually makes you money. It's no wonder that so many people use MileIQ, and it's not a surprise that the app has earned a ton of five-star ratings in both the Google Play and iTunes app stores. In fact, the folks at MileIQ are so confident you'll join them that they're making a special offer just to you. Just text HAPPENED to 31996, and you can start a 40-drive free trial. And if you create an account this week, you'll get 20% off an annual plan. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money you should be claiming. Take MileIQ out for a free 40-drive trial and take 20% off an annual plan just by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. Standard messaging and data rates apply. We are back right now. We are joined by Arthur Delaney. Hi. And our good friend and doomsayer, Jessica Schulberg. Hey, guys. How you doing, doomsayer? Uh, pretty, pretty good. Great, great. Yeah. Um, so this is one of Barack Obama's oldest promises as a candidate, as a president. He will close the Guantanamo Bay detention facility and remove what military experts call a major incentive to join up with terrorist organizations. Uh, once again, we've renewed this possibility that we might close Gitmo. Uh, here to disabuse us of the possibility, Jessica, what is going on? What is the 
What does the current new pivot to closing Gitmo entail? <laughs> so as much as I, I don't like to say that the, the things that I write and the news that I cover have, have no meaning, I would sort of like to put this <laughs> in context a little bit. Uh, the big news on t- on Tuesday when the Pentagon released this big plan, it, it wasn't like, hey, we have this new idea. This is going to work. We finally figured out how to how to make everybody get along and close Guantanamo. It was more that when Congress passed the annual defense spending bill in December, they required the president and the military within 90 days to say, here, this is how we want to close Guantanamo. So on Tuesday, that was the end of that deadline. The Pentagon had to give them something. So they basically gave him this plan that is nearly identical to the plan that Obama's been talking about for years, and that's a plan that right now is not legal. Congress has said that you cannot bring any detainees to the U.S. The plan says, all right, well, we can send a lot of them abroad, but we're probably going to have 50 people that we just are too scared to let go, but we don't have any evidence to charge them with a crime, and they need to come to the U.S. That's awesome that they met their deadline. Yeah. Just barely. Congratulations. You know, my my favorite part about that deadline is it was was a Tuesday at 10 a.m. news dump. It wasn't a Friday at (laughs) 4.59 on the eve of a long weekend. We had plenty plenty of time to to jump on it. So I can't believe we're still talking about this in these terms, Uh, but... Bring terrorists to the United States. Are they not in the United States if they're at the Guantanamo Bay detention facility? Well, well mm, I think the idea is that, the, to play devil's advocate, the idea is that if they break out, then they're not in your backyard. And Al-Qaeda and ISIS isn't going to plan some master breakout attack. But what's really crazy about that is we've got loads of terrorists in the United States. We have we have the guy who, tried to, who bombed 9-11 in 91. We have him in the United States. We have another guy who's accused of helping plan 9-11 who's in the United States. Like you mean we, detained in the United States? Yes, not yes. Just not just like hanging not around. hanging around. He's because actually that's another, my co-worker, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> that's another big thing. So why do people believe that there's a dime's worth of difference between a jailed, imprisoned terrorist in a supermax prison in the United States and... Or a military brig. Or a military brig. North Carolina. Or this offshore fantasy camp for reporters who like futility. Because nobody lives in this offshore fantasy camp. I mean, it's a very classic example of not in my backyard. And then it doesn't help when you have all this happening in an election year and Republicans, including ones who at one point have said very sane and reasonable things, are now saying, Obama's offering amnesty to the terrorists. And it's like... (sighs) Is there... uh, I have a question. Is there a uh, a bureaucratic euphemism for the uh, category of people they don't know what to do with? There is, Arthur. As a matter of fact, it's it's euphemistically referred to as the irreducible minimum. Amazing. Wait. That's that's an irreducible minimum. Okay, now where in Schrodinger's box do you find the irreducible minimum? So you've got 91 Guantanamo prisoners left total. Okay. Uh, we have 35 that have already been cleared by this incredibly complicated interagency bureaucratic board for release to another country. I can't do math, but 91 minus 35 leaves you with a population of people who might need to be transferred to the U.S. It's still possible. 56. So it's still possible. Thanks, guys. It's still possible (laughs) that some of those 56 could be cleared um, within the next several months. There's like a every six months a detainee is up for review where someone says, are you a terrorist? And he says no, and they try to decide if they believe him. Um, And so the Pentagon sort of estimates that there's going to be between 31 and 60 people that have to come to the U.S., we're not charging them with a crime, but we don't want to bring them here because 
there's this rule Republicans created, this law they passed saying you can't. Yeah. Even though we don't want to charge them. We can't charge them. We don't have evidence. We would love to charge them. So why so why can't we just close Gitmo and put them in some supermax? That's basically what Obama is uh, suggesting to do. But what's even problematic with that, what I wrote yesterday is this plan pisses off the Republicans and the super lefty human rights people because if you have this uh, 31 to 60 individuals who can't be charged with a crime, but you just transfer them to a prison indefinitely, like ostensibly till they die, then that's... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Basically, Guantanamo stateside. I mean, the whole issue with Guantanamo wasn't really just that it was in Cuba, even though that made it scarier and more foreign. It was that we were detaining people with no charge indefinitely, with no plans of really charging them. I have a series of questions that stem from the fact that I might be one of the few people in America who does not take crazy pills on a regular basis. My first question is, surely if there's no evidence of a crime and we cannot prove they're guilty of a crime, what normally happens in that set of circumstance is you say you're free to go. But they're terrorists, Jason. (laughs) But you just said there's no evidence of there being terrorists. If there's evidence of them being terrorists, then we're cool. We can try them as terrorists. This doesn't strike me as very habeas corpus-y. So there's there's two things. One is that some of the evidence, not I mean, in some cases there's no evidence. It's straight up bullshit. I think we've released a lot of the guys who it was just so obvious that they weren't, you know, they were mistaken for someone else with a similar Arab-sounding name. We've released a lot of those guys over the years. Some people now, there's evidence against them that was obtained by torture, which even in the military commission system, which is pretty flawed, there's some limitations on how much you can use that evidence. So here the military is saying, like, oh, God, they told us they did all these awful things or they want to do all these awful things, but we can't use it, but we don't want to let them go. The other issue is... So we have evidence. It's just that we were too bastardy... (laughs) In the way we obtain the evidence for us ever to be able to admit how we got the evidence. And that's true even with the cases we are trying. I mean, if you look at the 9-11 trial, I honestly don't see a way that we can ever actually reach a verdict. And if we do reach a verdict to convict them as guilty, there would be so many appeals systems. And eventually the appeals would have to go to the Supreme Court because it can only go so high in the military courts. And the Supreme Court wouldn't be able to uphold the decision. I mean, there's such a huge right. array of obstruction okay. of justice. Okay. And okay. like you said, it's largely because we... Fucked up. Fucked up. Okay. So my second question is this. 
because I guess I can't. Oh, but, but, but pause really quickly. Okay, though. sure. Let's pause really quickly. Just to just to get this out there. What's what's even more confounding is the Obama administration and whoever succeeds him, their legal justification for holding these people, and they'll say it's totally legal with international law, is that when you are at a war in a war and you pick up somebody on the battlefield, you don't have to charge them with a crime. You you can remove them from hostilities. And the idea is in the Geneva Conventions, the idea is it's safer. It's better that you don't kill them but that you imprison them until the end of hostilities, and then you're required to quickly return them home. But these the problem is that there is no end of hostilities. This is the never-ending war on terror. So we can we can sort of say with a very small degree of legitimacy okay. that we're still holding them as part of this war. Does uh, congressional war authorization play into that, like the fact that the yes, ongoing— Yes, the 2001 AUMF is what— is the legal justification for holding these guys if, right if now. If they were to rescind that and start a new one, would that change the the uh, legal situation for the people who were detained? It could. It's interesting because back in, what was the first time Obama said all the troops were leaving Afghanistan? Was that like 2014 we were yeah. looking at? <laughs> yeah. So I remember talking to um, a few lawyers who represent Afghans in Guantanamo, and they were saying like, all right, I know the 2001 AUMF isn't going anywhere, but if Obama's making all these big announcements saying we're pulling out of Afghanistan, it's going to become very hard for him to argue that we're at war with Afghanistan. And they were really thinking they could make a push to get their guys home. And for a while, there was sort of this effort to speed up repatriation of some Afghans. But there's, I think, I mean, less than 10 who are still there. So, OK, to review, mm-hmm. we have a bunch of people in an unclosable base that are untriable not because evidence necessarily doesn't exist, but we can't admit to how we obtain the evidence. Mm-hmm. Because if we admitted to how we obtain the evidence, we couldn't put them on trial. So we're waiting indefinitely to not put them on trial until perhaps old age catches up with these people and they die. And a lot of them were arrested when they were 19, 20, 21. And, I mean, their health is deteriorating pretty pretty rapidly under these yeah, conditions. But yeah, at the same yeah, time, yeah, it's yeah. not like we picked up a bunch of 60-year-old guys. I think the oldest one there is under 50. Maybe we should just leave Gitmo open as a monument to our massive, massive fuck-up. Yeah, have little field trips there. Like when you get to what grade do you learn Look about American adult- history? <laughs> Look at the adults in your life manage to screw up. The Republicans who are running for president have been like really excited about Gitmo. They like they it. They love Gitmo. So when Donald Trump's president, what is going to happen? You're asking me to protect something that happens in a Trump presidency. Well, because he'll just yeah, make... Yeah, why not? We all have to do it. Yeah, Maybe. we all have to do it. I've managed to... Um, it seems perfect for him because... He'll probably make it a lot classier. It's, it seems probably... like the problem they are having is literally that they can't make a deal. That's right. They can't make it. So this seems like a perfect problem for President Trump to solve with his deal-making ability. All right. Well, God help us all. All right. Thanks, Jessica. (laughs) Amen. Bye. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. 
Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. We're back here with Arthur Delaney. And um, we have been focusing periodically on this podcast on the lead water crisis in Flint, Michigan. It's a obviously a sprawling and ongoing story. We have more to talk about today. And joining us to talk about it, she was a the mayor of Southfield, Michigan. Detroit raised, Detroit bred. And she was the mayor of Southfield for 14 years. She now represents the 14th District of Michigan in the U.S. House of Representatives. We are very glad to have Representative Brenda Lawrence on the phone with us today. It's an honor to be here, so I'm glad to be able to talk. Well, we're glad to have you. We're especially we're especially glad that you're honored to be with us on our podcast. We do try to make it a special occasion for <laughs> everyone who joins us. Um and, you know, we have a serious thing to talk about today. Obviously, uh, uh, the, the Flint water crisis has, has enveloped not just politics in Michigan, but it's, it's gone national. It's now a, a talking point and a, a topic of discussion in the Democratic debates, at least. I wanted to start just by getting your perspective, because it's not every day we get to talk to somebody uh, in Congress who has uh, the perspective of... Uh, having been a mayor of a town in, in Michigan, uh, and, and well, politics happens somewhere. It happens in places, and you were in charge of a place. What when you heard about what was going on in Flint? What did your what what, what did your experience lead you to think about it? You know, being a mayor of a city, uh, people used to ask me often. You know, what keeps you awake at night? And I would tell them, you all just flush them toilet, but I'm so concerned about the infrastructure underground. Every time we have a water main break or you have a failure uh, in, uh, you know, in during storms or whatever, we know that that's our infrastructure failing. To think that you have citizens in your community that you're responsible for and a basic need for life, such as water, and you fail them, because you provide water that's poisoned with lead, it's just I I I couldn't sleep at night if I knew that that was on my watch. Uh, Congresswoman Lawrence, uh, lead isn't something that we usually worry about in this country. When you were mayor of Southfield, did it uh, was it something that you thought about from time to time, or, or, or no? Because I I had confidence, had toured, and knew that. Our water was treated. It was treated so that we would not have lead leaching into our water system. And this is the challenge, not only in Flint, not only in Detroit, but all over this country. We have lead pipes. The fact that Flint had lead pipes did not create this crisis. The fact that they did not treat the water in those lead pipes which allowed the lead to leach into the water system, is where the crisis began. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, in the U.S. Senate this week, uh, senators unveiled new legislation that is supposed to help cities like Flint and elsewhere deal with their water infrastructure. How does it look to you? With this happening, the legislation that the senators Gary Peters and, and Debbie Savinoff are trying to get through the Senate would address this issue on a national level. This is something that should never happen again in America. 
And I, I want to make a statement, and this to me is extremely profound. If it were not for our federal government right now, the people in Flint would still be suffering. It's our federal government that has stepped in. And when I just recently, just this past uh, Saturday, was in Flint and toured the emergency command center, staff ran and, and resources from the federal government. This state government has totally failed. Well, Congresswoman, that's interesting, but the the EPA has received some serious criticism for how it handled this. There was a uh, a manager who helped raise the alarm about it, but a higher-up person in the EPA last year uh, kind of kept it under wraps. Um, And and the House has voted, the U.S. House of Representatives voted on legislation that would encourage the EPA to notify people more urgently um, do, you, do you feel like it's it's fair to let them off the hook? So let's be really clear. What made this a crisis? The fact that the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality did not treat the water. EPA, who tested and had oversight of a state that has primacy, that means they have the primary responsibility for their water, the EPA notified the state, your water is not meeting the standards when it comes to water quality. You have toxins in your water. Um, the, the, so- depart- the State Department lied. The problem falls, and we addressed that in that legislation, yeah. is that EPA did not notify the residents or did not take over and stop the water. And that's where we pass legislation that in the future, whether the state has primacy or not, they must stop, they must notify the residents, and they must stop the distribution of water if they know it's toxic. You mentioned that Governor Rick Snyder is is going to be coming to town to answer questions about this. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, just two questions about that. First of all, uh, the emergency manager system is kind of his baby. It's was his uh, governing vision for reforming uh, the the municipal uh, p- politics of the state of Michigan. The idea being that <clears throat> communities that had failed to come under budget to meet certain standards were going to be taken over by an emergency meritocrat who would then dictate uh, what this what the municipality was going to do uh, above and and perhaps without the democratic. Uh, support of the citizens. Uh, do you do you first of all do you blame that governing vision for what happened in Flint? And second of all, what would you ask uh, Governor Snyder if you had the opportunity to do so in a hearing? Absolutely, hold that system of emergency management that this governor has pushed down the throat of the Michigan citizens. Now understand, Michigan citizens voted that they did not want this system. And the legislative body and the governor signed it that says they changed it and found a loophole to attach it to appropriations so that therefore it did not have to be the vote of the people. Now, let me tell you why I, I blame this. Because the financial manager system that this governor has reigned with is that there is no local control and all decisions are based on the bottom line. They're financial decisions. So home rule 
is totally out the door. Because someone tried to say at one time, well, Flint voted to switch their water. Flint didn't even have power because when this emergency manager comes in, mayors, councils, township supervisors, whoever's in charge, elected by the people, lose all of their powers of decision making. And so this was a decision made based on finances. Based on finances. And then all of the staff of the city is stripped because in this governor's mind, that when you meet your bottom line, everything is fine. And even the Republican supporters of this governor is now saying that this this whole Flint situation is a result of his management style. He came in, and this is a discussion that America needs to hear right now. When people come into government saying, I'm an outsider, I don't have any political experience, I'm a, I'm a businessman, and I'm going to run our country or our government as a business, this is the result you get because there is a unique skill set, philosophy, and strategic responsibility of government. And everything that government do should be driven not by the bottom line. You have to have a bottom line, absolutely, but it's about taking care of the people. And when you don't have that as your primary responsibility, you're going to do things that will harm people. Uh, Congresswoman Brenda, uh, Brenda Lawrence, when Governor Snyder comes to Capitol Hill next month, uh, what do Democrats on the Oversight Committee hope they can get out of him? We want to know what happened, when it happened, when did he become aware, and what did he do when he became aware and for him to say, he, this went on for a whole year in his administration, and he has said that he didn't know about it. How could you not know when there's emails and your staff and everyone else knows what's going on? It was public record that the people in Flint was very disturbed about their water. This was public discussion in the summer of last year. Yeah. Now, uh, the, the water was basically brown and nasty, like from the minute they switched to the Flint River in April 2004. But Governor Snyder, we know from the emails that have been out so far, you know, people in his administration were blowing off concerns that it had lead in it. They were warning people when there was other bacteria to boil the water. Do you feel like he gets a pass because they were on top of some of these other things? Or, or is the fact that... Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If Uh, it were not for that pediatrician and that outside scientist continuing to raise concerns and wave the flags and using their voice, the governor was not even responding. His administration wasn't even addressing the issue. And it was that pediatrician that said, look, these children in Flint, their lead levels are continuing to rise. Yeah. So if they had not been there, there was no action. Do you think there's a lesson there? Uh, we we talked to Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha about this and the work she did to bring that about. It seems to me that... Uh, Really, what matters here is is politicians who kind of work hand in hand with the public. Do you think that uh, Do you think that that is something that 
uh, Governor Snyder should answer for. And do you think your colleagues in the in the in the House do a better job of connecting with their constituents in meaningful ways? When you are held accountable by the people who elect you, it makes a difference. When the emergency managers come into major cities, they do not host public forums. They don't have to answer to the electorate. They don't have public meetings. They're not, they're not held to the same standard of FOIA and other freedom of information. They, they operate as czars, as absolute powers. And they make decisions based on the bottom line with the governor saying that if you meet the bottom line, you are successful. You're sleeping well at night. Oh, my gosh. And then he rewarded the guy who did the Flint situation <laughs> and put him in Detroit over our Detroit public yeah. schools who are now in crisis. So the, when the water was brown and the governor, their office was assured from the people in the Department of Health and, and the Department of environmental quality though it's it, sure it's brown but that's just a cosmetic problem because we've tested it and it meets whatever standards have been set I, one thing i wonder is um the water should never be brown or should people drink like cosmetically gross water and trust those assurances like is, is that where Snyder really went wrong just blithely assuming that weird and ugly water was okay that's why we need to bring Snyder. Testify. I can't answer that question. You know, if you would ask me, I could respond to that. How is it that you're a sitting governor and there is an entire community that's getting brown water, water that smells, you have people screaming from the community, and you have what you call your appointee in charge of that city? I want, I want that question answered. Um, because I can't answer that for the governor. I, 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 it, it, it is so unbelievable for me for us to be in America in 2016 and have to ask these questions about drinking water. So a lot of people have said he ought to resign. Some people have said he should be indicted. Uh, there's a recall petition. Do you think he's going to be able to serve out his term, or is, is he in too deep trouble for that? Governor Steiner is going to have to answer that question that there should be accountability. Um, one last question. Uh, like, like, like we said from the outset, you have the experience of having been a, a mayor of a town in Michigan. Now you're, now you're representing the, your district in the House of Representatives. What's, what do you think the step forward here now is for, 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 for the House of Representatives to do? If I, the ideal situation, what would you have them do? Oh, you know, the first legislation that we passed bipartisan you know let's talk about it was bipartisan because this water issue is not political it's not democratic it's a basic human right and we're in america and we make certain promises to the people in this country clean water safe food uh and clean air and so what should this legislative body do the first thing we did we voted in a bipartisan way to ensure that our federal oversight never again allows this to happen. We are now uh, in the Senate, and we'll be doing it in the House, passing funding and uh, resources so that we can fix our water infrastructure in America. That's what we should be doing now. All right. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us today. 
Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to be, be with us, and I hope you'll come back. Oh, I will. Thank you so much. We have a great day. Our pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh, we will be right back. And we're back. Jason Lincoln and I have switched chairs. Jason, I like the uh, I like the perspective from this office. I also have, I guess, uh, better access to your tent now. Yeah. So yeah. if I get bored during this segment, I'm going to rifle through your possessions. Uh, this is always so weird when we change Ooh. chairs because I'm always worried Jason's going to rifle through my Look stuff. Look at all the cans of Vienna sausages. <laughs> so you're a prepper of some kind. We are joined <laughs> as well by. Hi, I'm Alexis Goldstein. I'm a senior policy analyst at Americans for Financial Reform and known bank dork. Longtime alum of the bank dork agenda. Um, we're going to talk today about payday loans and about a particularly devious, I think, <laughs> effort in, uh, in the House to essentially deregulate them or prevent the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, from actually regulating the payday loan industry. So, Alexis, I want to start with you. What is going on in Congress right now? So there is a bill in Congress um, called the Consumer Protection and Choice Act, and usually when bills are named in ways that sound good, you can pretty much guarantee it does the absolute opposite of what the name sounds like. Um, Consumers should have a choice to be protected or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I might choose to get ripped off. They may be my choice. I mean, it, when I go to national parks, I want the choice to be eaten alive by a grizzly bear. That's right. I want that choice. America, freedom, and eagles. Um, it's H.R. 4018, and basically what this bill says is, hey, guys, we have this really great standard in Florida, and so long as there is an equally good standard that protects, and I'm doing scare quotes, the consumer, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that's about to write some rules to rein in the payday lending industry doesn't get to mess with them. Um, but the problem with that is that the state law in Florida that they're basing this bill off of is really quite terrible. Um, as soon as you said Florida sets the standard, I was like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, they like to talk about this bill that they passed in Florida as doing lots of good things for consumers because they have a what's called a – so, okay, let's back up. So payday loans, usually the problem with payday loans is not only are they really high interest, is people take out more than one of them, right? You start with one and then they roll over, and when you roll over too many times, your APR ends up being something like upwards of, you know, 400%. It, it looks like a great deal when you go in, you're, or at least a reasonable deal. You're like, okay, it's going to cost me, I think in Florida, the average is about $55 to take out a $300 loan. Okay, I really need this money, 55 bucks, whatever. But what actually happens is people take out five or six loans because in two weeks they don't have the $355 they need to pay back the lender. And so they get, it's the $55 quickly becomes $300 or $500 or, or you know, even more in cases. And so what Florida did is they mandated a 24-hour cooling off period. So basically between your two payday loans, you have to think about it, I guess, for 24 hours before you take out another one. Um, so the result of this, if you compare what we see nationally in terms of like annualized interest for payday loans, nationally we see about 391%. That's what the CFPB found in a report. In Florida, we see 290% or upwards of 300. So it's a it's still a ridiculously high number and not doing a whole lot. I don't think you can bury, uh, claw your way out of debt if you're paying so really almost 300% interest. So really this law that is being touted as a success is just a big cock-up. 
Well, essentially, when this passed in Florida, I believe the the payday lending industry was on board with it because they realized they That's would do right. so little they could they could talk like like they, the industry had been reformed. They could get the issue off the table, and they would just be able to say, "Okay, now let's get back to what we're doing." Um, the Pew Charitable Trust does a lot of statistical research on payday loans, and they found that in Florida, over seventy five percent of the people who take out a payday loan end up taking out another one afterwards. They they are doing this process called rolling over the loan, where they 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 just physically don't have the money. So, you know, if you if you implement a one day cooling off period, but you're so desperate for cash, you're going to a payday lender. Money's not going to fall out of the sky in those 24 hours. You still need the money. And for most of these borrowers, the the, the amount that they're taking out in, in Florida is upwards of 30 percent of their paycheck. So think about that. If you have a if a third of your paycheck is just about to disappear, how many people out there, you know, no matter how much money you make, are you going to be able to pay off your bills if a third of your money just suddenly disappears? 24 hours isn't going to fix it for you. No. So what is this the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau trying to do that these lawmakers want to to get around with the, by by appealing to this bad Florida law? So the 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 CFPB is about to release some rules that will essentially uh, we've seen some previews of this, and they're like the proposals that they had to put together for small businesses. Um, they're going to make sure that people have the ability, we think, they're going to make sure that people have the ability to repay these loans. The CFPB doesn't have the power to just have a rate cap. I think that would be the most ideal way to deal with this is say something like, you know, oh, 36% is the absolute maximum you can charge people. They don't have the ability to do that. So what they've seem to have suggested is they're going to say, okay, we're going to look at your income. We're going to look at different things and make sure that you actually can repay this. And then the payday lender cannot give you the loan if you can't, you don't have the ability to repay. And they're freaking out about that. So they're basically trying to sort of preemptively look at this law that the payday lenders in Florida were totally on board with because it was so weak and say, if there's a sort of equivalent law with similar restrictions, again, in air quotes, you're good and the CFPB can't come and mess you up. So from the payday lender's perspective, their business model is dependent on catching people in situations that they can't get out of. Their business model is built on exploiting people in poverty, basically, in tough situations. Yeah, I mean, the... The fact remains that there there have been a lot of other state experiments which with, with trying to regulate payday loans, which I don't think have gone far enough, but have significantly curtailed payday lender profits. And I should just note, so AFR has a bunch of people in our coalition, but a lot of them are consumer groups. And we had a letter that we put out in opposition to this bill that was signed by over 200 groups, including many consumer groups. So even though this law is supposed to be about consumer choice, there are no like actual consumer groups that are out there saying that they are in favor of it. In fact, they're saying the opposite, that they think it's a very dangerous standard. Now, before we go, Jason, uh, you're going to be shocked to learn this. Um, okay. You know, Republicans spend a lot of time in Congress talking about how bad regulations are. They're, it's no surprise they're enemies of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But there are seven Democratic co-sponsors of this bill, including DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Are you, aren't you just, just stunned by this? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not even remotely stunned by that. Why, so, why not? <clears throat> because I'm because I'm pretty used to uh, I'm pretty used to Democrats uh, being on the wrong side of this issue. Uh, I mean, if if we're talking about Debbie Wasserman Schultz in particular, uh, I I don't have you know open secrets in front of me, but I would almost guarantee you that she receives a significant amount of campaign 
money from this industry. It, it, there are, in fact, uh, quite a few Florida Democrats who do get a lot of money from the campaign, from the, the campaign money from the payday loan industry. Ah, how about that? Alcee Hastings is real who's a shot in the dark gets, for me there, lot. right? <laughs> Patrick Murphy, who is running for Senate as a Democrat in uh, in Florida's disastrous looking uh, Senate race, with uh, he's he's. He's running against uh, Alan Grayson in just the ugliest Democratic primary in the country by far. But uh, Florida sets a standard, Zach. They set the standard. And on that note, we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We're always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Michigan Representative Brenda Lawrence, Americans for Financial Reform's Alexis Goldstein, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, Paige Lavender, and Jessica Schulberg. This podcast was sponsored by Club W, the revolutionary new wine club that brings delicious bottles of wine right to your door. We were also sponsored by Mile IQ, the mileage tracker app that's helping millions of Americans make more money. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.